Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 6. Today's topic, metrics. Hey, Lee. Hey, Shannon. Good to see you guys. What's up? Hey. I want to start. I want to hear where you guys are just coming from, and I want your drink orders. So I will have a white wine spritzer. Thank you very much. And I just got out of a wild paper. It was called, Is Calling Rene Descartes the Whipping Boy of Philosophy Kink Shaming? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, so like Shannon, I'm going to stick with my regular drinks. So serve me up a Fireball and Diet Coke. I just got out of a Husserlian session, which, you know, I don't normally go to Husserl sessions, but it was called, This Could Have Been an Email. And I dedicated. <laughs> wait, 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 you gotta let me get past the colon. All right, sorry. <laughs> sorry. The paper was called "This Could Have Been an Email: An Eidetic Reduction of the Committee Meeting." Oh, <laughs> see, it's the colon. It always gets academics. Yeah. We just can't. We can't wait for it. I know. So basically, I- whenever I like read through the conference program, I only read to the colons, and then I just bust out laughing. That's right. <laughs> Ammon, what are you having? So, you know, I, so I'm going to join Shannon today. I'm going to have a white wine spritzer also. It's lovely spring weather, and I want to sit out and kick it on the porch. Oh, y'all nice. are going to talk about your lawns. You know it. Actually, the section I, <laughs> the session I just got out of was called, Hey Kids, Get Off My Lawn, Adorno Reviews Music. <laughs> Today's topic is going to be on rankings and ratings. So that's actually why I went to that session. I wanted to sort of get a heads up with a really, really judgy philosopher. So that I'm in the judgiest headspace I can be in as we start to talk about rankings and ratings, which show up everywhere. I hope that we have time to talk about some of the more out there experiences. And I know we've asked our listeners to talk about algorithms, but I'm actually hoping we can start with something kind of more concrete. And that's something that I think there's disagreement even among us here about the value of. I'm hoping we can talk about the main way that we evaluate and rank our students. Grading. Lee, I know you've been doing a grading experiment for a long time. And this semester, I've started one myself, sort of stemming from my long-standing hatred of and belief that grades are completely antithetical to the character of the academy. So I didn't just want to have this conversation that I can preach about how much I hate grades and how much I hate teaching evaluations. But I'm kind of hoping we can start there. Yeah, so I think I might be the midpoint here between your view and Shannon's view. I don't think that grades are totally useless, but I don't think that they do what the institution promises that they do. And I do actually believe that more often than not, that grades actually get in the way of students learning. I'm going to spare everyone all of the explanation of how it is the case that grades do not actually reflect a, a fair evaluation or even an objective evaluation of students' performance. And I really want to concentrate on how it is the case that the obsession with grades, the like overinflated obsession with grades gets in the way of students learning. And so I'll do this quickly, but for the last several years, I have spent the very first day of my class, I asked my students to engage in something that I call an experiment in grading. And basically what I do is I explain to them the problems with grades, both in terms of you know, grading as some kind of objective measure of their performance, but also their grades as overinflated indicators of their merit. All of my classes operate on a 1,000 point scale. And so they have a syllabus. Every assignment, every quiz, every essay has already a point total associated with it. And I say, by the end of the semester, you will have had the opportunity to earn up to 1,000 points in the semester. But what that means is that at the end of the semester, and this is, of course, true in every class, somebody will have 801 points and someone will have 899 points and both of them will get a B. And the only difference between the first student who got a B and the second student who got a B is that the second student will have gotten a B with 99, what I call pointless points. And that is true in every class that most people score between the letter grades. So in my institution, we don't have plus and minus grades. So I tell them, I'm like, what if I gave you the opportunity to take all of those pointless points at the end of the semester, put them in a pool and redistribute them? And basically, I give them one class period to deliberate amongst themselves to decide, first of all, whether or not they even want to do this. They don't have to do it. 
And I do point out to them that there's no plan that they can come up with that will hurt anyone's grade. I mean, everyone's going to get at least the grade that they earned. So first they decide, do they want to do this or not? And if they do want to do it, they have to decide and plan for how the points will be collected and how the points will be redistributed. And it's been a really interesting experiment in my classes. I mean, they really do have to start talking at the beginning of the semester about all the ways that their grades are determined, the sorts of random interferences that can come in, et cetera, et cetera. And you might not be surprised that most of the plans that they come up with end up looking roughly the same. I'll put this in a link for the episode notes to this episode, but I do have those laid out in a post that you can read so you can see that. But that's what I've been doing with grades this semester, just to get students to think about grades and also to think about themselves as community and also bonus on the very first day or at least the second day of class when I do this experiment, it gets them talking and actually deliberating about something important to them in class. Do they ever opt out of it? I have not yet had a class completely opt out of doing it. And I think this is for two reasons. One is because part of this experiment says that on the last day of the semester, they will be able to revisit their plan and either totally discard it or amend it in any way that they want to amend it. You know, again, it has to be a collective decision. So every class has eventually adopted some kind of plan. I will say that there have been classes where there was a lot of debate just about that question. Should we do this or should we not? I mean, it's interesting. So I I want to talk in a second about what what I'm trying this semester. But one of the things that I find fascinating and that when you started doing this a couple years ago, got me thinking even more about grades than I already had been was it seems to me like you're decoupling the idea of grading from the idea that this is an assessment of individual merit. Yeah. Yeah. And I also want them to really think about grading as a benefit that Mm. is distributed, as we know, and I really think it's important, that is distributed largely unfairly. And so to think about how might we make up for those inequalities. I mean, everyone doesn't start in a class on a level playing field. If, if at the end of the semester, there is a limited pool of resources, namely points that are going to be distributed in the class, we could say, oh, well, they should be distributed according to merit. But that involves a lot of magical thinking about how points are actually distributed in a class. And so I want them to think about, we know we're going to have these extra resources is there good that we can do with those? And think about them as a community. You're a class, you're a community. So what continues to motivate students in this situation? It is extremely hard, I would say, basically impossible to game this system. So a lot of people think, well, why wouldn't you just try to get a high C and just count on the fact that you're going to benefit from whatever the redistribution of points plan is. Have you ever tried to get, you know, <laughs> a 77 in a, or, you know, a 770 yeah. in a class of a thousand points? I mean, it, it would require more work to game this system than it would be just to do well. Right. But what if I just did my, the bare minimum and then planned on just getting the extra points at the end? I think that's still the same question. So most classes, when they make up their redistribution plans, will say you have to be within this margin of the next possible grade in order to get the redistributed points. Because keep in mind that at the end of the semester, they have to decide both how the points are going to be collected and how they're going to be redistributed. So one way you could do it, the most obvious way, is say anyone who has X 49 or less points, we're going to put those points in the pool. And anyone who's within 50 points of the next letter grade, they can keep their points and hopefully they will benefit from the redistribution. This has not made a huge amount of difference in my grade distribution in my classes. The biggest difference has been from high Bs to As. And honestly, I have exactly zero problems with that. Like I said, we don't have pluses and minus. Minuses at my institution and most B plus students, I can think of a number of reasons why they probably should have gotten an A, right? Uh, and I don't know their lives, but you know, it's, you know. I worry that we're still thinking in terms of a scarcity of points, which I wonder if it isn't an artificial scarcity and a concern for motivation 
that I have never been persuaded grading actually has any relation to. Now, so this I, might be that I am the kind of student who sometimes worked hardest in classes where I didn't get a great grade and sometimes got a great grade in classes I didn't work very hard in and didn't really care much about grades. I was not a very grade-obsessed student myself. So as much as I like this experiment, I wonder if we're still placing too much emphasis on this idea that we can use grades as a way to motivate better work and that there's a straightforward, linear way to track exactly what good performance is. So I actually do want to hear about the grade experiments that you've done in your class, Emin, but I think that we really should hear from the person who wants to defend the traditional model of grading first. Totally fair. Because, yeah. because I think the questions that you're asking and the questions that were besetting me when I came up with my experiment are ready to be answered by Shannon. So Shannon, why don't you talk a little bit about why you don't fuck around with grades in your class? (laughs) Right. So a couple of caveats here. First of all, I wouldn't say that I defend the traditional understanding of grades and grade assessment. The second caveat is to say, I think it's really good for students, especially in something like the humanities, to have different professors assessing them in different ways, because I think that gives them the ability to see that there are different ways of achieving success in the world. So having it be the same across the boards, I don't see that that's necessarily a benefit. So I love that you all do these grading experiments and I learn from them. And truthfully, I have adjusted my understanding of merit and grading as a result of these conversations with you. I guess I think that, and again, it requires that you are not an overworked adjunct, that you're not purely exploited labor, in which case I think that this does not hold up in the same way. But I think that there is something about having the individual relationship with students that allows you to take into account all of these different factors to the extent that you can. You can't know about their private lives. You can't know about their socioeconomic conditions, but you can know the way that they perform in a class with you. And I think that's one of the things that we do as, I hate the word experts, but still we are experts in teaching that we can work with individually students on the way that they achieve various goals. So that's all to say that there is no objective standard by which all students are going to achieve grades in some kind of abstract way, especially again in the humanities. But I do think that it's possible to have these as goals to attain and as marks to try to reach and that it's gonna be a different kind of pathway for individual students. And our job is to sort of work with them on that path. I mean, I agree with you that it is important for students to realize that they're evaluated in different ways in different classes. But just a straightforward question. So you said, look, I can know my students. Again, I think you're right that not everyone can do that. I teach about 100 students a semester. I cannot know them all personally. This is where uh, Shannon I, loves her snowflakes. So. She does. <laughs> yeah, sorry, she, does. Ahead, yeah. she has snowflakes. I wonder, like, again, straightforwardly, when you say on the basis of what I know about students, and I can't know everything, but on the basis of what I know, which is a cultivated kind of familiarity with the students, I'm going to assess their work specific to them. So real question, do you, for example, grade essays by students for whom English is a second language, different than students for whom English is their first language? Yes. You know, you do? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, well, that's interesting. I mean, (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. I I have certain standards. I say everybody has to run it through a spell check. No excuse for having misspelled words. Do you have rubrics for this? Yeah. Like, But I also, I just want to say this, it's almost impossible to get lower than a B in my class. So I don't tend to grade A, B, C, D, F. I tend to grade A, B, and if you just really put no effort at all into something, then C. It's so hard to get lower than that in my classes. I totally agree with you that we're in a position to really provide a lot of guidance for students. When I say that we should get rid of grading, I do not think we should get rid of assignments or feedback. But what I'm wondering is specifically the fact that we go on to attach a rating that we purport when you do it as a tenured professor with the time to do it and the love of snowflakes that Lee and I just don't have. And when 
an adjunct who is doing it at six universities is doing it. And when the close to retirement professor who's kept checked out, and that's not true of all close to retirement professors, but when the professor who's checked out does it, that it assigns a letter, which for the purposes of our students is the same. It seems to me that that gets so fully in the way of any valuable feedback that we can do that I no longer see the value of doing it at all. Well, we, I think you can still give valuable feedback, as you said, but yeah. it doesn't actually provide the service that we want it to provide for our students as they move forward. One of the reasons why this semester I finally decided to go as close to whole hog as I legally can and try to get rid of grades which I'm my institution, I'm not. Don't worry. They're, I'm giving grades. Uh, but I'm trying not to. But <laughs> attention, attention. <laughs> University <laughs> of Toledo administrators. Is, Amen is still shackled by your oppressive system. Well, that's because we're going to talk about grading ourselves in a second. So I got to grade myself. But anyway, the reason why I switched over is because I realized that I was spending way more time in my feedback justifying the difference between an A and a B plus than I was on evaluating them. And so I decided this semester, so I don't want to go too much into it just for time. And that's also because this is my first time running it. But I'm following some advice from people who do what's called ungrading, which is a term that's associated with Jesse Stommel, who I hope at some point we can get on our show. So that's a shout out for a future season here. And he and other folks have sort of tried to encourage ways to dial back evaluation as part of grading. So this semester, I've got assignments and I've got levels. You've got to do certain things to hit a certain grade. But in terms of every assignment, you either do it or you don't. And and you can always resubmit it. So there's the possibility of resubmitting. But ultimately, the feedback is how to improve. As long as it hits a bare minimum, it's done. And that's the only grading that takes place. But it's precisely motivated by this concern that, like, I was spending all my time justifying why this is an A and not a B. And I, I don't care. And it got in the way of giving my students real evaluations. Yeah. Can I follow up on that? I think you are 100% right that when you are grading for grades, it turns out being justifying the grade that you gave in your feedback, which isn't always the most helpful feedback. But honest question, do you find that you are still giving feedback? I've got a TA for my big class. For my upper level class, yes. And it's more individualized, I feel like. I'm a little bit envious of Ammon's commitment to almost ungrading, and I'm very envious of the people who've actually been able to commit themselves to ungrading, but I still do have this reservation, which is, again, maybe closer to Shannon, which is that, I mean, let's be honest, there are a lot of students out there who have 3.5s, 3.8s, 3.9s, who get into medical school, who I do not want as my doctor. Right. Like who yeah. I know are not, you know, I mean, I'm, yeah. I, I have, yeah. I know that I have contributed to a lot of people who I do not think have the critical skills to do what their grades make it possible for them to go on and do. And so there is a part of me that is still a little bit worried about the fact that I can sit here and harumph about grades all day long. But the truth is, is that they still matter in exactly the same way before I harumphed about them. And students are going to go on to use these metrics. You know, there's somebody out there is going to look at the metrics that I have assigned and assume Mm -hmm. that they are objective evaluations of a student's skill sets. And so I am worried about that. I am worried that this is one of those problems where you have to make a big change at the top or else any small changes at the bottom only contribute to the exacerbation of the problem. Yeah, I think that is a good place to go to. I think that we can't just talk about grading outside of other forms of evaluation because I completely agree. Like we are introducing our students. Well, we're not introducing our students. They're 18 by the time they get to us. They've been evaluated for 18 years. But we're introducing them into a world in which being evaluated and being graded and figuring out how to game, as you guys are pointing out, a system or not game a system are the norm. I've said so many times that if you go to public school in the United States, all you've learned how to do for your first 18 years of life is game metric systems. 
Oh, yeah. And my students this semester, they're showing a lot of anxiety because they'll say, like, I didn't turn this in on time. And I'll say, that's fine. Just turn it in. I don't care. And they think I'm lying to them. Right. I think that they think that I'm still lying to them, that I'm only going to give them the grade that they've done the work for. And so they have all this anxiety. And I have that anxiety, too, because I'm evaluated all the time, too. I mean, how how many ways are we evaluated? Yeah, still. that's a good pivot. I mean, like, yeah, Thank let's talk about much. the <laughs> nicely done co-host. Yeah, let's talk just a second about student evaluations of, of us. Yeah, of us. I have to say, I am so conflicted about student evaluations. And this is just an honest admission because I am completely convinced by the research that these are biased, that these fail, that these are prejudiced against women and people of color and accents and you name it. It's just completely false objectivity. And in that sense, it just feels like, why are we still doing this? But on the other hand, and I really rack my brain trying to think about this, how do we give students the ability to be able to give feedback to professors? Because honestly, some professors aren't very good. And the (laughs) student evaluations, they show this, that there are deep problems in the way that these classes are being run. And I feel like even though I don't like them, I want to find a way that the students can give feedback that matters, that actually catches problems that people have to rectify, and we don't just sort of let everybody do what they want. So I'm going to assume that the three of us, and this is not in a braggy way, largely get very good student evaluations, right? You both yes, do, right? yes, 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 okay. for the most part. So this is not sour grapes, what I'm okay. saying here. Right. is that, But like, I do think that... There is a tremendous amount of value in student evaluations for a professor's project of evaluating the merits and demerits of his or her own course. Right. However, I believe that if those student evaluations of a course are going to be used in an evaluation of the professor, that the student should not be able to fill out that evaluation until five years after they've taken the course. Oh, that's That's great. But they'll forget five years is too yeah, much. Yeah, well, but, but like it should be an option. It should be like, I don't even remember this course, right? Like five years after you take your course, you get an email and, you know, and, and, you know, like, I think here's, that's here's, too here's, long. Here's, here's that's the, too no, long. no, 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 no. Like, yeah, let, yeah, yeah. let me make my pitch. Let me make my pitch. Because all right. All right. Thing, here's the thing. The, the it's already the case that in a normal course, the students who actually bother to fill out the evaluations are ones who really loved it or really hated it. So it's still going to be the case that if you really loved it or you really hated it, five years later, you're still going to fill out that evaluation. And the truth is, is that if you really loved it or you really hated it, five years later, you're probably going to have had time to reevaluate your immediate, passionate response to that course. I'll also say that it is, of course, the case that when student evaluations are usually distributed, which is near the end of a course, but before the grades are actually distributed, that is the time where students are the least capable of evaluating a course in a way that would be helpful either for the student or for the professor or for anyone evaluating the professor or the course. So you're absolutely right about the timing of student evaluations. It's the worst time period to have them evaluate the class. Five years, I reject the pitch. I love you, but I'm going to say that's way too long because it's just completely (laughs) impractical. One year? One year? One year. I would say one year I will consider. But one last thing, and then I want to hear what Ammon has to say about this, is One of the things that we've talked about, and we cannot figure out why it doesn't happen, and I think there are other schools in Utah that do this, is that being able to get your final grade is contingent upon you filling out your student evaluation. Uh, And that's not the case at my institution. It's not the case at my institution either. I'm just saying that it's at least possible that that could address the only the people who love it and only the people who hate it fill out the evaluations because if everyone has to do it, that's at least a better pool than the terrible percentages that we usually get for these things. 
So compulsory ranking. Yeah. I mean, it's an imperfect system. And I know this sounds weird, but I really want the students to have some input into their education that actually matters and isn't just bullshit. What if it was still the case that professors could solicit their students to submit student evaluations at the end of a semester? So it still serves that function for the professor, which is like you get them when they're either really happy or really pissed off. Like you get their raw, unedited replies. Mm -hmm. But then one year later, they have to fill out a university-sponsored evaluation and they don't get their grades till a year later. Oh! (laughs) I'm fine with no. But I think, you. I mean, look, you guys are getting to the problem here, right? Which is, it seems to me like what we're doing is finding ways to accommodate a real need. We all agree that student that there are shitty professors right. that do not give a shit about students. And Present that, company excluded. That's right. I mean, obviously not us. Of course not us, right? And that students have a right to give them feedback. Also, I like getting feedback so I know what worked and what didn't. But, and this gets back to the point about grading, I know for a fact that students, even who have constructive criticism, are sometimes loath to put it on there because they like me. And they want to make sure that the university knows I'm a good teacher, which thank you so much. I'm so flattered. <laughs> bless their hearts. Right, I don't, I don't think my the, students care that much about my feelings. I think they do. It. I think they do. They they tell me. They say, I gave you a good evaluation, right? And I don't think it's like, so you give me a good grade because it's very easy to get a good grade for me anyway. But it's in the sense of, I think that they want to do something nice for you. And that doesn't do anything for me. That doesn't help me. I want to know what worked and what didn't. And again, I think rating gets in the way of that kind of evaluation. So how do you evaluate if you don't do ratings of professors? And that's an honest question because I think it's something that we all agree needs to be rethought. I think that's not just a question about teaching. I think you're getting to this issue that we are in a profession which is competitive. And again, evaluations and ratings show up all over the place. So the question is is essentially, how can I allow this one part teaching to fit into this broader evaluative regime. I get that this makes me sound like some sort of anarchist hippie, but I hope that in the next 30 minutes, I've persuaded you that, no, we just need to get rid of ratings and evaluations everywhere. love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the Hotel Bar Sessions hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness. Ammon is at Ideasman PhD. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. I would be remiss if I only complained about teaching evaluations and if we didn't at least stop for a second and talk about the ways in which we evaluate one another, which I think is kind of problematic. So we're in a profession that is in many ways self-policing. How does our profession do its self-policing? Let's rank our profession at its ability to self-police. We keep out the we keep out the perverts and we keep in all the qualified teachers. <laughs> so this is right. So you're talking about the way in which our universities assess our performances. Even more the ways in which we assess one another. Like how? You mean like how we count each other's publications and count each other's likes on podcasts? Absolutely. Oh, I count our likes on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we count one another's publications. So universities do evaluate us, but they outsource that, right? So last we just completed our evaluation of our department. We brought in people from other programs on the assumption that only philosophers can evaluate one another. And, you know, I think we run a good program, and I think the evaluation showed that. But essentially, the university was trying to say, like, okay, well, how much do these publish? How good is their teaching? Are they doing the latest methods? Again, I understand the need for improvement, But this is an entirely punitive, evaluative regime. It also suffers from that pretending to be objective, that this professor publishes in this journal and has a book with this press and presented at this conference, and we can somehow assign an objective measurement to those things. And if you get down to it, all those objective measurements, because we are in a self-policing profession, because we're experts involves a cadre of people who've been picked out as an elite, of which we are a part now, right? Let's be clear. 
deciding what counts as in or out of the community of work in a given field. I think that's absolutely right. And it also bleeds down into individual departments, right? So it's not just these external evaluators. It's also we have to come up as a department with a decision on the metrics by which the individuals in that department will be evaluated, which has the effect of turning us against each other. Yeah, my, in my department, we have to do a scales of one to five with three being passing, but anything other than five, of course, being, you know, I have been for years pushing everybody gets fives unless there's a very good reason not to. And you would think that I was advocating baby killing. <laughs> <laughs> baby <laughs> like, dropping, Ammon, but, baby dropping. But the argument, because the argument is, and I think part of the point is that they're worried that we're not going to look good to our profession. Because again, and I want to come back to this, our profession thinks that it polices itself And I would argue our profession does a terrible job of policing itself. And you are in a situation where you are at a research institution and you have graduate students. And so I think that that pressure of numerical evaluation is a lot worse for you. That's probably true. Yeah. So this might be the most obvious 900 pound gorilla in the room to bring up right now, but As you both know, and maybe our listeners know or don't know, the philosophy profession in general is ranked according to this report, which is called the Philosophical Gourmet Report, which was kind of a pet project of one particular philosopher. I'd say petty Um, project. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) That began many, many years ago and had the advantage of getting started when the internet was still baby internet. But it has unfortunately persisted and increasingly had an oversized influence on the way that rankings of philosophy departments in particular are set and evaluated. And so about, gosh, when was it? I want to say it was about five years ago now. There was a a big brouhaha about this report, largely connected with the report's author, but basically a lot of information came out to show that these kind of reputational rankings, which is largely how this philosophical gourmet report works. So it would be helpful maybe to define a reputational ranking really quickly. A reputational ranking is one where the report's editors or publishers solicit experts in a given area So it could be anything. In this case, it's in areas of philosophy. And those folks compile a ranking. I I think they they happen to use a five-point scale, but you could really use any numerical scale. But what the numerical scale essentially does is they they put together some rubrics on specific things that they want evaluated. And those folks put together a number that corresponds with their perception of that, in this case, program's importance in their field. So while it's numerical, the numbers are entirely produced – by appealing to a small group of hopefully experts to quantify their subjective perceptions. And it's a really good example of exactly what is wrong with some massive ranking metric scales. And I know we're going to talk about this later in the episode, but I just want to say now that this is the main argument of Kathy O'Neill's, at this point, really famous book, Weapons of Math Destruction where she basically argues that when you have algorithmic systems intended to rank and evaluate certain things, that there's always hidden in those systems power structures, certain kind of dominant prejudices that end up reproducing a world that they claim to have already found there. <laughs> and She calls so, them opinions embedded in code. Yeah, so she says, and, and I think the PGR is such a good example of this as an opinion embedded in code. It's also a really good example of what she calls a WMD, a weapon of math destruction. It has all three of the characteristics of a WMD, according to Kathy O'Neill's definition, which is that it's secret, it's powerful, and it does real harm. People outside of philosophy look upon (laughs) the influence of this particular metric, this particular PGR metric, and honestly think, what are those people in philosophy smoking? Right? (laughs) Like it is. How, How do you know that? How do you know that people outside of philosophy judge it that way? 
I read it on the interwebs. Oh, well then <laughs> no, I'm convinced. <laughs> no, but there's been so much press about the many, many, many problems, not to mention all of the ancillary drama surrounding the PGR. But it is the case that just on what we're talking about today, a sort of analysis of ratings and ranking metrics, that this is a very good example of exactly what Kathy O'Neill describes as a weapon of math destruction. I'm, by the way, I don't know if I'm enunciating enough, but I'm saying math as in mathematics. Is it because it has real world consequences on programs and tenure and hires and graduate students? Is that what the real world consequences are? Yes. And also because just like predictive policing, it ends up reproducing the phenomenon that it is meant to evaluate. Right. Well, I think we could have a whole episode on all the problems here, right? And <laughs> but let's take some of them as a but gift. let's not. Let's really yeah, not. Let's not. It's it's actually <laughs> really it's it's such a bad survey that it's actually even really boring to talk about all the yeah. things that are wrong with it. We'll put some things in the links. But there are two things that I really want to highlight. One of them is you mentioned early on that I th- and I think this is right. Why did this again on any 15 second consideration of how it, of its methodology laughable survey becomes so wildly popular and there's at least two important answers one of them you started to give and the other I want to add to this so is that well the guy who wrote it just did it first at least first yeah. on the internet I and think so that's right I want to talk with you guys about ways in which the first ranking of something can end up having an outsized influence? I think that's an interesting question. The other, and this gets back to it, is that in this case, the reputational rankings that were being put in place tended to largely, in fact, almost exclusively, reproduce reputational rankings in the academy broadly. You know, the joke that Princeton has one of the highest rated law schools in the world, even though it doesn't have a law school. There's almost no phenomenon that you can find in which the introduction of these kinds of ratings and rankings metrics doesn't dramatically change the phenomenon that's being rated and ranked. And my favorite example is, of course, colleges and universities. So when U.S. News & World Report began its rankings of colleges and universities, which was in 1985, between 1985 and 2013, the cost of tuition rose 500%. If that does not make everyone sit back and say WTF is going on here, I don't know what will. And if, you know, if people want to sort of say like, oh, that's just a, you know, it's correlation, not causation. No, actually, we actually have very good evidence that in this case of causation, there's very specific mechanisms by which George Washington University was one of the pioneers of this. Perfect. You know, if you went there, good for you. It's a perfectly good school. But they realized that the, the number one way that they could quickly move up the ranking was just by increasing the cost of tuition. Not even by increasing anything that they did, just increasing the cost of tuition. That on its own ended up snowballing. And George Washington, NYU, a lot of schools, I mean, the number of schools that didn't follow this trend would be harder to enumerate. But yeah, so that gets to the other issue that I want to bring up. So on the one hand, I think the thing that's worth remembering about PGR as we start to think about other phenomenon is how important coming in first and reproducing existing social prejudices are. The other thing that I think is really interesting to think about here is the way in which people who make monetary decisions, i.e. our bosses and administrators, are so thrilled to have any metric, even if it's a metric that's utter shit. There's lots of ways in which this shows up. So Lee, you just mentioned colleges and universities. I hope we have time to talk about social ranking systems more broadly. I, I know we're all fans of Black Mirror, and there's a Black Mirror episode that's on this, right, where somebody makes an app that allows you to rate everybody on everything. And next thing you know, it turns out that every decision that's being made, any form of social sorting that can happen, is happening through this app. And this is, of course, the natural consequence of a capitalist society in which businesses are driven by exactly these kinds of metrics. There's almost no business interaction from the perspective of a business or from the perspective of consumer that is not fed into an algorithm that's meant to maximize profit. Listeners, I just wanted to jump in here to encourage you to subscribe to Hotel Bar Sessions on Google Podcasts, Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, ignoring everything that we've said so far in this episode, we also want to encourage you to, if you feel so inclined, take a minute to rate Hotel Bar Sessions on your podcast platforms. We highly recommend a five-star rating. Now back to our conversation. So I I love this conversation because I completely agree with everything y'all are saying. And I'm just like grabbing my pitchfork as we speak. It brings up like what exactly is happening with metrics and the book, you know, the tyranny of metrics. And these things start with the best of intentions, right? Giving people clear targets, motivating people so that they know what they should be doing, self-actualization. And then it ends up with, as you've already said, both of you, distortion distorts the very thing that it's trying to accomplish. It ends up encouraging people to game the system with creaming in order just to focus only on the things that are going to be the clearest evidences of success and letting all of the other more complicated things fall away, oversimplification, taking out of, you know, context the various things that actually matter because it's too messy to try to pull apart all of the complexities. And so these things start, as we've just said, with student evaluations and faculty evaluations, that there's a reason of the best of intentions behind these things. But what ends up happening is the exact opposite of those intentions. Yeah. And let me just shout out the author of that really amazing. And by the way, really short and super fascinating text, Jerry Muller, who wrote The Tyranny of Metrics, which we'll put a link to in the episode notes of this. But that was such a great summary. Yes. It's really good. And yeah, it's definitely one of those things that got me thinking, got my sort of complaininess moving to actually identification of a systematic problem. I will say, though, I am actually not even convinced that there was ever a good motivation. I don't disagree that there are some good things that are attached to it, but I think these are almost entirely rationalizations. And I think that in a neoliberal society, I think this marks the first time in the podcast we've used the word neoliberal. If that's true, I'm proud of us. Yeah. We We made it six episodes. (laughs) But I think in a neoliberal regime, the sorting has always been the point. And the really good things that you guys are pointing to that are the good motives have never actually been driving it. Because if they were, I don't think we ever would have settled on a ranking system. What would you recommend instead? <laughs> he, he recommends a poem. That's <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> What's the best poem? Or, or even better yet, fragments of a poem. <laughs> Poems. Preach. But can I jump in here? Because I'm 100% sure that I'm going to say something that you guys are not going to like. But I want to speak in defense of metrics, which is not exactly to the point that Amon just made. So I agree with Amon that the motivation for adopting all these metrics has always been driven by capital, primarily power, secondarily. And I'm not even sure that you can distinguish the primary and secondary causes there. But I do want to say that one of the things that kind of frustrates me about people's criticisms of good algorithmic metrics is that if they're well-constructed, if they're transparent, if they're constantly improved, they can, in fact, help us do a lot of things. And they are, in fact, very good at predicting human behavior. And One of the things that I do feel like we as humans do not want to admit is that our behaviors are patterned in large ways that we can't see, but super sophisticated systems that can analyze a lot of data and recognize patterns that we can't see can see. So I do think that there are ways that we can defend certain metrics, certain rankings and rating systems. I think the problem is that, and again, this is Kathy O'Neill's argument, is that most people are afraid of math. Most people are intimidated by math. And so if you present something and you say, the math says this or the science says this, most people are like, oh, well, I guess that person knows and I don't know. That's the problem. The problem is that we have slowly slid into this kind of passive acquiescence to a a sort of routinization 
and metricization. I'm not even sure if that is a word, but whatever, where we just take it to be the case that if the math says this is the case, then it must be the case. I want to follow up on that because I think that's really good because O'Neill says that that allows for the very things that cause the problems in the first place, like data laundering. This is a result of these black box algorithms. And you're right. We just sort of become passive in the face of these things where we're like, well, it's math. It's science, it must necessarily be objectively true. And what are we going to do anyway? Because we can't understand it. I have no idea how algorithms work. I have no idea who's making them. So I just have to sort of trust that they have my best interest at heart. And because it's mathematics, they're objective. No one's got their, you know, no one is the invisible hand controlling these things. And that's why she says you have to have algorithm audits, right? We should be allowed. We should be allowed to actually have these shown to us. We should know the exact algorithms that are going into the evaluations of us as individuals, the evaluations of student populations and populations in general. This should just be completely transparent. This should be available to everyone on demand, and it should be completely optional to opt into. I know I said this in our episode three, where I talked about technology, but this is why I think that we are going down the wrong path to keep insisting on privacy when what we should be doing is insisting on transparency. Preach. Because because the truth is that you may not care about mathematics. You may not be good at mathematics. But the fact is that, as I said in episode three, there are however many thousands of colleges and universities and community colleges in the United States. They all have math departments. Why not make Analysis of algorithms, what Shannon just said, which is Kathy O'Neill's idea, algorithmic audits, a basic component of a math class. You're basically outsourcing justice work to universities and colleges across the United States. But even if this was completely transparent, it's going to modify the algorithms, even if they're not being evaluated. If it's like, look, I exactly. know that the exactly. algorithm that I am going to be using as a private company, especially, is going to be out there for anyone to be able to evaluate. I don't necessarily even need it to be evaluated for me to check what I'm doing. I was with you close to the end there. I am, I think, maybe a little more sin. I do think it would change things. I agree that transparency is important. I'm not sure that it's on its own sufficient. But no, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you would actually. I I, I disagree. I think on its own, it's sufficient. An emphasis on privacy is only going to get us deeper into the problems that we already have because our arguments for privacy are going to be used by corporations, which, by the way, are people. Are people. I think you just touched on another point that maybe is worth considering. Maybe part of the problem is that we made corporations people. That is to say, I'm not sure that I have to treat corporate privacy and individual privacy as the same kind of thing. Hey, yeah. by the way, 2015 called and they went their <laughs> argument. I'm fine with that. Maybe 2015 was right. Right. But well, it but totally no. was. We all agree that it was, but like, that's not the world you're living in. Ammon. No, but people are not making algorithms No, let me finish. All right. People are not making algorithms here. Right. What you're talking about is. Al- Wait, what? what? Hold on a second. You're talking all about right, algorithmic transparency. Algorithmic transparency to go from that to we don't need to worry about privacy is, I think, a pretty big leap. And I don't think that it's one that I have to agree to. Now, I'm not disagreeing with you that tri- that transparency is necessary. I'm not even necessarily talking about privacy when I'm saying that's the problem. My concern is that even if you had a transparent algorithm, that on its own does not guarantee justice. That on its own does not guarantee a good algorithm. I think one of the features that we're seeing more and more in the world is that we're more and more comfortable with inequality. We're more and more comfortable with corporations controlling the ownership of decisions. And I think that there's a distinct possibility that you could have transparent algorithms and still have people acquiescing to unjust features of them. Okay, I agree with that last statement. Just like I agree that you can have police departments and still have people that acquiesce to unjust social and political practices. So we should go to police departments too. I genuinely think that 
transparency is exactly what we need. I feel like I'm becoming a mouthpiece for Kathy O'Neill here, but everyone should read Weapons of Math Destruction. I don't know what required reading is in high school, but this should be it. However, I do want to say that one of Kathy O'Neill's really important insights is that all algorithms are operations of power. One of the ways to contest power is to make it show its operations transparently. That has always been the case. And maybe it's the case that it shows its operations transparently and all of us say, okay, I'm fine with beheadings or whatever. But largely it is the case that when those operations are transparent, that the demos says no. To be clear, I agree with you. Transparency is necessary. No disagreement there at all. But but I think that what you're saying is like, okay, yeah, I agree with that. However, we still need to insist on privacy. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that's not sufficient. Not Forget privacy. That's a separate question to me. What I'm saying is even if you had that kind of transparency, privacy or not, to say, oh, the demos will just take care of it. I think understates the reality of the political problem. And I think, you know, this is something that we started to touch on again, I think a tiny bit in the technology episode. Uh, Near the end of that, you said technology is the solution and, and technology will be the basis for a political solution. The only thing I'm saying, it's not about privacy. What I'm saying is the political solution is still part of the equation that is not given by transparency on its own. We're still gonna have to organize And even a transparent algorithm can still be used to oppress in ways that make organization possible. Please be sure to check out our website at hotelbarpodcast.com. And be sure to click on the interactive page each week, where we post questions about topics to be covered in the upcoming episodes. You listen to us. We want to hear from you. And you may even hear your comment or story on air. So I know we don't have enough time to really develop this in its fullness, but what do we think about things like social ranking, which made big news with the way that China has started ranking its people with the question about sort of private companies doing these rankings and then the government taking this information and not really being clear how it's going to be used as a sort of across the board algorithm. This is also something that we saw in the Black Mirror episode Nosedive. This is something that we experienced just based on social media use across the world. So what do we make of that kind of social ranking system? One of my frustrations over the last several years since this Chinese social ranking system has been getting more and more press is what appears to me the total blindness of Americans to the fact that we already have this system. We just have it in a very disorganized form. We are constantly ranked by our FICO scores, our driving records, our medical records, our social media likes and follows, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those determine our access to certain opportunities and our you know, ability to not access certain opportunities. The problem is, is that they're not all consolidated into one uniform system. I have said before that there's a part of me, and I know you guys are going to like have a conniption when I say this, but there is a part of me that sort of thinks... Maybe I would prefer that we just had a universal ranking system so that I actually knew, right? Like if somebody said your social ranking system score is a 4.5 or whatever on a five point scale. I mean, it wouldn't be that you guys know me, but like (laughs) if it, but then at least I wouldn't have to operate as I do in the current United States society, which is constantly trying to juggle all of these different scores, like my social media presence, my credit score, 
my medical records, my criminal records, my driving records, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like, all right, Lee, I, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> all right. I'm sympathetic to what you're saying. This is such a big question. Who knows the direction this is going? I agree. We are already being ranked in this way. We are already being evaluated in this way. I think the point with the Chinese system is that it's not yet consolidated. That This is not yet something it's ultimately going to be government controlled, but it's yeah. still in the same kind of disarrayed, private, disconnected evaluation that we have right now in the United States. I think it will always be worse in private companies, but I don't see how it's not going to be a black box algorithm, even if it goes to the United States government. And I think it wouldn't be any easier to be able to petition for changes and to take maybe to court these kinds of problems for the way that we're being scored by simply moving it out of private and into governmental control, especially since in the United States, the government really is just a collection of private interests for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with Shannon. But I, Lee, I am happy that I think we've made up now that we're both in agreement that this is already happening in the U.S. too. So I'm glad that we can be friends again, and I'm going to rank you as a five. So <laughs> despite our earlier disagreement, and I hope you'll do the same for me. I know this is a naive question, and maybe this is 2010 calling now. But if we accept that the proliferation of rankings is a reality, and if we accept that whether we're in China or the U.S. or anywhere, the likelihood of increasingly centralized ratings is coming for us. Leaving aside ideal philosophy and saying, like, what's going to be better or worse – I guess my question to you is, if I'm going to hang my hat on something, why should I hang it on centralization instead of a system that is more fluid, more flexible, and has more room for people to sort of navigate out? And dare I say, quote our friends Nietzsche or Derrida, forgiving and forgetting. You should c- contextualize what I said before about mm-hmm. the possible merits of a consolidated social credit system with my earlier comments from the earlier segment about total transparency for all algorithms. So just like you can contest a charge in the courts, right? Like a criminal charge in the courts, you can contest your social rankings. You could say, look, these rankings are not correct. Or look, this law, this algorithm needs to be amended. It is I mean, unjust. it's not a bad it's idea. Unfair. The fact is that our practical day-to-day lives are entirely determined by these metric systems, which are completely opaque and which are completely arbitrary and which we know in the very rare instances in which they've been made transparent are completely prejudicial and reproduce the kinds of social stratification that we already know is unjust and problematic in our societies. I'm just saying that maybe it would be better if we're going to do this. Let's just make it transparent and let's make sure everybody knows it. And actually, I personally wouldn't mind knowing my scale. Then I know what I can do or not do. And then I know if I want to, as my partner does, just like move out in the woods and live off the grid. I was going to say, you're going to end up driving a truck. <laughs> I'm going to end up, I, in my house, I'm going to end up sleeping on the couch because my partner is like, what? <laughs> look, I, I, you know, look, I, I think we, there's a lot more to talk about here. It sounds like we're going to have to have an, an episode on who's the most neoliberal. No. <laughs> we'll all nominate each other. <laughs> we won't do that one. All right. We won't do the who's the most neoliberal and nominate one another. Look, I am sympathetic to what you're saying about the need for transparency. My big concern, and I'll leave it at this, is I think that a lot of what you're saying depends upon this hypothesis, if it's going to happen anyway. Now, I'm not saying that the horse isn't already out of that barn. That's a callback to some previous podcast. But I still think that there's value in the political, not individual, but the political collective resistance to the very fact of that. And is that naive? Maybe. But I'll I'll leave it at that. I don't think that's naive, and I totally agree with you. I just think, I don't think it's naive, but it's impossible without, first, an insistence on algorithmic transparency. We're in agreement there. That's a necessary condition, yeah. We are getting the last call of last calls. I think they want us to be more transparent with how we're going to tip. <laughs> or when we're going to leave. Right? <laughs> hey, Shannon, what are we going to talk about next time? 
All right, y'all, we're going to switch gears just a little bit, and we are going to talk about nostalgia. I want to talk about it as a political and a philosophical and a personal and a generational concept. That takes me back. Yeah, right? (laughs) I'm actually super, super excited about talking about nostalgia. Yeah, I think we're going to have a good time. So I hope uh, our listeners will think of philosophers and politicians and the ways that they try to sort of build off of or utilize or stoke nostalgia. All right, you guys. I'll catch you next time. Thanks so much, guys. See ya.